Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. I'm Mark Feinsand of MLB.com. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor. Erectile dysfunction is more common than you might think. 52% of men over 40 will experience ED at some point, and about 75% of those men don't seek treatment. That's why Roman makes it easy to get expert treatment from a U.S. licensed physician all online. No judgment, no hassle, no hours spent in the waiting room. With Roman, you get expert medical care for ED right in the comfort and privacy of your own home. Everything is online, so it's convenient and discreet to contact a doctor about prescription medication. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com major and complete an online visit with your medical history and symptoms. A licensed physician will evaluate your online visit and let you know within 24 hours if medication is right for you. If prescribed by the doctor, Roman delivers genuine medication right to your door with free two-day shipping. Just go to GetRoman.com major to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com major to get started with a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com major. Welcome to Executive Access. As I said, I'm Mark Feinstein of MLB.com. Uh, we're going to do something a little different this episode. We're going to look at the winter meetings of years past and some of the biggest deals that have gone down at baseball's Jewel off-season event and talk to some of the people who were there to cover them and in some cases break the stories uh, as we look at uh, sort of the biggest events that have happened at the winter meetings since the year 2000. Uh, we're going to talk to T.R. Sullivan, Peter Abraham of the Boston Globe, Matthew Leach, Brian Hoke, and Jason Beck. And we're going to hit on a number of topics. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this, something a little bit different, but uh, everybody loves a good winter meeting story. So let's start it off with our good buddy from MLB.com, T.R. Sullivan. T.R., how are you, my man? I'm doing good, Mark. How are you today? I'm doing great. So you attended maybe one of the most eventful and exciting winter meetings that we've ever had back in 2000 uh, in Dallas, right there in your hometown, uh, where three major free agents all signed nine-figure deals. First, Mike Hampton signed his big deal uh, with the Colorado Rockies for eight years and $121 million. Then Alex Rodriguez signed his 10-year $252 million deal with the Rangers. Uh, and then, of course, Manny Ramirez signed his eight-year $160 million deal with the Red Sox, all in the span of one winter meetings. What was it like being there as all these monumental signings are going down? Well, Mark, that was a, obviously a very uh, monumental meeting for the Rangers. Um, now, I was working for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram at the time, and I was driving 30 to 40 minutes to get to the hotel every day to, to cover the meetings. And, you know, to start with, to begin at the beginning, Alex Rodriguez became a free agent after the after the season with the Mariners. And when he became a free agent, there was a lot of talk about how he was going to sign with the um, New York Mets. That's, they seemed to be the favorite in this whole thing uh, at the beginning. But then something came up. There was there seemed to be a lot of excessive demands on the part of uh, Scott Boris, you know, as far as marketing and, and things like this with the Mets. And somehow, even before we got to the winter meetings, the Mets, just pretty, Steve Phillips was pretty much threw up his hand and says, we're out of it. We're not signing Alex Rodriguez. And that kind of shook everything up. So we, so we went into um, Dallas and basically what we knew as far as the uh, Rangers beat riders, we knew the Dodgers were a possibility, the Atlanta Braves were a possibility, Seattle and the Rangers. And we knew Tom Hicks, the owner of the Rangers who lived in Dallas, was really eager to sign Alex Rodriguez. So going into those winter meetings, we knew those four teams were, were the contenders. Now everybody knew that, that A-Rod was going to be looking for the biggest contract ever. But I think the number when it came out of $252 million really threw people sort of for a loop. It's, it was such an unbelievably big contract. Did you think that, that Tom Hanks and the Rangers were, were going to be willing to go to that kind of level uh, to secure A-Rod's rights? Yeah, it seemed from the beginning, talking to Tom Hicks, who was always a good, uh, who was very open as an owner, uh, always willing to talk to the reporters and let us know what's going on. Um, we knew going in that, you know, Alex Rodriguez was going to be a major target. You know, the thing that was funny was, you know, for the first three days, you know, nothing happened. I mean, the Rangers were busy. They signed Mark Pitkaisic. They signed Andres Galraga. And they signed Ken Caminiti. You know, they, you know, three, you know, significant free agent signings. and But nothing was going on with Alex Rodriguez. And then finally on the – we're getting down to 
probably the next to the last day of the uh, winter meetings and things really started heating up. Um, you know, the Dodgers kind of fell out of it. Um, I remember the Mariners uh, were didn't want to go more than five years. Pat Gillick really didn't want to go longer than that. I remember uh, on the day, that day, you know, Tom Hicks came to the uh, Anatole Hotel to talk to Boris face to face. I remember talking to him, you know, around five o'clock that evening, and I asked him what was going on, and he pretty much said it's it's down to between us and the Braves. And I said, "Wow, do you think you have a chance?" He says, "Yeah, I think we have a really good chance." And then a source told me that the Braves had a meeting in their in their um, in their room, and Bobby Cox, you know, John Sherhold says it doesn't look like we're going to get him. And Bobby Cox says, John, we got to make our best offer. We got to put our best foot forward. And John Sherholtz told Bobby Cox, Bobby, we've done that. So when I heard that, you know, it, at that point, you know, it became pretty clear that the Rangers were the front runners. You know, talked to Boris briefly in the hallway. He said, Yeah, the Rangers are working hard at this, and we're working hard at this. And I, I talked to Johnny Oates, the manager of the team, and. Um, you know, he was getting updates from uh, the Rangers, and he said, said, yeah, it's looking good. It's looking like 10 years, $240 million. And then by late in the evening, you know, we had to, at the Star Telegram, we had to make a decision. You know, we put everything together, talked to everybody we could talk to, and we pretty much wrote a story that said, hey, the Rangers are going to sign Alex Rodriguez for 10 years, $240 million. We're going to put that out there. We put it online, whatever that you did back then in 2000, as far as online. And you know, next thing you know, ESPN is broadcasting that, oh, the Fort Worth Star Telegram is, is reporting that the Rangers are signing Alex Rodriguez. You know, so I'm going, all right, we're out on a limb. This is great. So about one o'clock in the morning, Scott Boris comes into the um, Scott Boris comes into the uh, press room, and and I ask him, so is it done deal? Are you guys done? Are you going with Rangers? And he says, no, it's not done. There's still teams involved. And I'm going, really? It sounds to me what I'm hearing that you guys have a done deal. And he says. Nope, that's not true. And I'm going, holy cow. So I remember I remember talking to my editor, and we both we had been very elated. Now we're like, oh, my Lord, what, what have we done? Were we too premature? Were we too quick? So I remember, I remember walking out of that hotel, going back to my house at 2 o'clock in the morning, and Steve Phillips and Jeff Morad were talking in the hallway, and they called me over, wanted to know what's going on. And I told them, I said, well, you know, um, we were writing that Alex Rodriguez is signed with the Rangers, but Boris says it's not a done deal. I don't know if I've blown it. I don't know if I've screwed this up. And I remember Steve Phillips. I'll never forget Steve Phillips saying, stick to your guns. You'll be all right. And that kind of lifted my spirits up. But I remember driving home and getting into my house about three o'clock in the morning. And my wife saying, what's going on? What's happening? And I said, I'm reporting that Alex Rodriguez is, is signing with the uh, Rangers. And if, and if this doesn't happen, if I'm wrong, I'm going to be, I'll be lucky to be covering Pascal High School football next year. So I got up that morning and, um, you know, I had a big dread. I was just like hoping, to, hoping against hope and um, that this was going to happen. And I got to the, uh, I got to the uh, hotel and I walk in and there's Jim Fergosi, who at the time was a scout for the Atlanta Braves. And he, he was sitting in the lobby and I was talking to him. And he said, yeah, Boris called us this morning and said, we're out of it. I said, really? He says, yeah, we're not in it. I, I knew then that I was right, and by the end of the morning, by the end of the morning, it, it was obvious that he was going to sign. But but the thing that uh, it turned out it ended up being two hundred fifty-two million dollars because of interest and technical things. But basically, it was a ten-year, two hundred forty million dollar contract, and he ended up signing it that afternoon. And they had the press conference that night, and then the next day they brought Alex Rodriguez into into uh, Arlington and we had a big ice storm. I remember that a big ice storm, and we went to <laughs> went to a press conference for him at like at two o'clock in the afternoon in Arlington, and then I had to drive home to uh, Plano to uh, write my story. And I got caught in an ice storm, and I had to call in my story from a from a payphone in a in a bar halfway between Dallas and Arlington, uh, or, or halfway between my home and Arlington, and I had to read it by the light of a by some light between the in some dim hallway, dictating my story uh, to the Fort Worth office. So it was unbelievably crazy. For some of our younger listeners, a payphone is something we all had to use back in the day before there was such thing as a cell phone. Uh, you know what's amazing to me when you think about that that winter meetings at the beginning of the meetings, Mike Hampton signs his deal 
with Colorado, eight years, $121 million. At the time, it was the biggest contract in baseball history in terms of total dollars. And it was the first eight-year contract that had been signed since 1977 when Wayne Garland signed a 10-year deal with Cleveland. Within three days, A-Rod more than doubled that contract. Manny Ramirez topped that contract by almost $40 million, another eight-year deal. Alex signed a 10-year deal. The fact that those three deals went down in the span of three or four days at the same winter meetings is astounding when you think about sort of how deliberate the, the free agent pace has become now. And, you know, even in years where guys sign on the quicker side, you still don't see a lot of the huge contracts signed much before Christmas. The fact that you had these three guys sign at the same meetings just must have been, everybody's head must have been spinning in the lobby. Oh, yeah. I remember, you know, it's funny. I remember about that was Sandy Alderson, who, you know, had been the athletics general manager and ended up with the Mets, but at the time was the vice president for Major League Baseball. He was their Joe Torrey or whatever back then. And he was he was not happy with all these big contracts. So Mike Hampton gets up there at, at his press conference and says, "Yeah, the money's great, but you know we really like Colorado, and you know you know we're going to live in this city, and this city has like a great school district. We really love the the school district. I can't remember what city it was, but he kept going on and on about the school district. So after after the Mike Hampton press press conference, a bunch of us gathered Sandy Alderson in the hallway, and he goes, "Yeah, you know if you want the money, that's fine. If it, if you're in it for the money, fine." But I don't want to sit here and listen about some school district. <laughs> I remember living in New York at the time, uh, as I still do, listening to sports radio. Hampton, of course, left the Mets uh, fresh off helping them get to the World Series in 2000. And and I remember some of the New York sports radio hosts just railing about Hampton talking about the school districts. And I don't want to hear about school districts. This is about money and blah, blah, blah. And they were going nuts about the school district. That that became a very big talking point in New York following that press conference. Well, it was a dumb thing to sign with the uh, Colorado Rockies, you know, pitcher committing eight years to Denver. I don't think he uh, – I remember the Rangers were going to try to get him a few years later. Everything had gone south in um, – Colorado, the Rangers were trying to get him on 10 cents on the dollar and hoping to re- rehabilitate him. The thing fell through. But I remember, like, and I don't know if it was like 2004 or five or so, at some point, you know, the Rockies were just desperate to get rid of Mike Hampton. One last note on the A-Rod signing. The 252 seemed like an odd number at the time. If I recall, wasn't that they were trying to get exactly double the Kevin Garnett contract because that had been the biggest contract in American team sports at that point? I don't, I don't remember that uh, specifically, Mark. Uh, you may be right. I know there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff done late that night. Uh, there was interest rates and buyouts. You know, he ended up get, having that, um, as you remember, that out clause after seven years. Yes, I'm very familiar took. with it. <laughs> yeah, I bet you're right in the middle of that when uh, that happened down in the World Series, and uh, everybody went ballistic when that got announced during the World Series that he was opting out of that contract. There were a lot of things that got it to 252. I, I never heard the Kevin Garnett story. And it never occurred to me. I know that I remember it being the biggest contract in the history of uh, sports passing Kevin Garnett at the time. Well, we'll see if we will ever see a winter meetings with quite as much high profile activity as that one. But you certainly were there for a, uh, a historic week in Dallas back in 2000. T.R. Sullivan, MLB.com Rangers beat writer. I appreciate your time and uh, thanks for coming on. All right, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Joining me now on Executive Access, my good buddy, my former beat compadre in New York and the longtime Boston Red Sox beat writer and now national baseball writer for the Boston Globe, Peter Abraham. Pete, how you doing, pal? Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, So you broke a big story at the 2010 winter meetings. I happen to have been sitting next to you at dinner, I think, uh, when you rushed away from the, the table and um, we were trying to figure out where you went, and then all of a sudden we figured it out once we found that you had uh, reported that the Red Sox had signed Carl Crawford to a seven-year, $142 million contract. Uh, this, of course, came just days, I think five days after the Red Sox had traded for Adrian Gonzalez, so uh, they were certainly a, a big team that offseason. Uh, take us through the process of, of breaking such a story and sort of just going through the whole, uh, you know, the whole rigmarole of what it what it. You know, what happens when a big signing like that happens to the team you're covering? Yeah, well, you know, it goes back to the regular season when the Rays decided to keep Crawford and not trade him, uh, even though he was coming up on free agency, because they thought they were going to have a good team. And they they did have a good team. They won 96 games, uh, got in the playoffs and lost in the first round. So the Red Sox were always obviously playing the Rays. And the speculation was rampant, even going back to the beginning of that season, that once Crawford became a free agent, the Red Sox would be all over him. 
they were going to have payroll space. They were going to need an outfielder. Uh, they, they obviously saw him play a lot. And then adding to that was that the Red Sox had assigned one of their executives, Allard Baird, to basically watch Carl Crawford all year long and, and try to get an assessment on him. So we knew that come the end of the season, the Red Sox were going to be very heavily involved with, with Carl Crawford. And it was to a point where those of us who were covering the Sox were like making it a point to go into the Tampa Bay clubhouse and like check in with Carl Crawford because we figured uh, one way or another this was going to be a big story. But once we get out to those winter meetings, uh, that's where it really started to percolate. And, and there were the Sox were talking to, to Crawford and his people, and, and it became very evident that he was the guy that they were focused on. So after they trade for Adrian Gonzalez, who you know was going to cost a ton of money, uh, I believe he got his own seven-year deal worth over $150 million. Was it surprising that the Red Sox had gone out? I, I, th- I don't think they had given out a seven-year deal during the John Henry era. Um when they bought the team in 2002. So for them to sign Adrian Gonzalez to this lengthy contract extension after trading for him, and then to go out and, and acquire Crawford on this kind of a deal, was there any sense of surprise that they were you know, going to that level? No, there was, it was sort of a, at the time, the feeling that they needed to refresh their roster, that the group that had gotten them the, the 2007 championship was getting older, that, that the farm system wasn't as productive as it had been, and that they had to do something to, caused some excitement and, and, you know, the Red Sox have their own regional television network. Uh, the ratings had gone down a little bit and, and there was just the general sense that they had to start doing something to, to make the team not relevant because they're always relevant in Boston, but just to kind of make things a little more interesting. And Gonzalez was a guy, Theo Epstein had been chasing for years. Everybody knew that, that how much uh, he wanted Adrian Gonzalez and Crawford had killed the Red Sox as a member of the Rays. He hit, he hit for average and power at Fenway Park. He would steal big bases. It seemed like all of his good defensive plays had saved games against the Red Sox. So Red Sox fans, and I think the administration too, probably thought Crawford was a better player than he actually was because he was at his best against them, it always seemed. Now, we remember after the 2008 season, when you were still on the Yankees beat, uh, they went crazy. They signed Sabathia and Teixeira and Burnett. And that, of course, is when Larry Lucchino dropped the infamous Evil Empire. Uh, actually, I guess that was the that was actually the Jose Contreras thing when he first dropped the Evil Empire. But there was a lot of complaining out of Boston and, and uh, sort of griping about how much money the Yankees were spending. And then just, you know, two years later, the Red Sox go out and, and drop about $300 million on two players. Um, was there, um, you know, was there a devout face in the, in, internally in the Red Sox organization about, uh, you know, well, if the Yankees are going to do this, the only way we're going to compete is by doing the same thing. Yeah, that was at a time. And I think this is actually dissipated now that the divisions become, uh, you know, more competitive, that the Red Sox had to counter what the Yankees did. And if the Yankees had a big offseason, the Red Sox had to either try to counter that that offseason or, or come back strong the following season. So this was, I think, a reaction to some of the moves the Yankees were making. And the Red Sox, it, it just felt like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, that they weren't producing the players out of their farm system that they had before. They weren't making those little trades that Theo Epstein did so successfully uh, earlier in his tenure with the Red Sox. So they just started going for the big ticket items. They had, they had signed John Lackey a year before that. They had gone after Mike Cameron. They had, you know, now it was going to be Gonzalez and Crawford. They, they were trying to pile up the superstars and do the most that they could with, with still having guys like John Lester and Dustin Pedroia. And it's funny because after the after the Red Sox made those moves, everybody assumed, like you said, it was you know, oh, the Red Sox made a move. The Yankees are going to counter. You remember that's uh, when the Red Sox signed Daisuke Matsuzaka. The big move the Yankees countered with was signing Keigawa. Um, These don't always work out so well. But at the time, after the Red Sox traded for Gonzalez and signed Crawford, everybody thought it was uh, you know a foregone conclusion the Yankees were going to do whatever they had to do to sign Cliff Lee. That of course didn't happen. Um, and everybody said, oh, the Red Sox have taken the lead. Uh, of course, hindsight being 2020, we look back at the Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford era. It didn't work out quite as well as the Red Sox had hoped. No, I remember that spring training. Everybody was, you know, talking about how this could be the best Red Sox team ever, you know, even better than 07. Uh, you know, they were they were going to rampage through the American League. They were going to be such a good team. And they, they did that for a while in 2011, then had that historic collapse at the end of the season. And that led to Terry Francona not coming back, Theo Epstein fleeing for the Cubs, uh, somehow Bobby Valentine becoming manager. And it went from 
you know, this unbridled enthusiasm that that this is going to be this the start of this great era for the Red Sox. And look at all the all-stars they have. Look at the lineup that they have. Uh, you know, they've got so many good players. They, they can't figure out what to do with Kevin Euclid, you know, stuff like that. And then it became this complete disaster that, you know, everybody either left or got fired and they fell into last place in 2012. And, and Adrian and Carl were right in the middle of that. Uh, they got traded to the Dodgers that, that August. Uh, yeah, it was like, you know, for somebody starting out covering the Red Sox, I was only a year or so into that, uh, to see them swing from one extreme to another uh, reminded me a lot of my time covered the Mets, not so much the Yankees. Six years after that winter meetings with Crawford, the Red Sox made another huge move at the winter meetings uh, in 2016, making the trade to acquire Chris Sale. Um, you know, free agency, you see things coming a little bit. You, you've got your sources. You've talked to people in the organization and agents, et cetera, and you have an idea of what players your team is in on. When it's a big trade like that, uh, sometimes these things kind of catch you by surprise. Well, you know what was interesting about that, Mark, was, was Dave Dombrowski, when he was the general manager of the Red Sox, was very direct about what he wanted to do. And you'd ask him a question, you know, what do you feel like the team's needs are? And he wouldn't kind of talk around it like so many other GMs would. He would say, well, we need to get a starter. We need to get a left-handed reliever. We need to get a third baseman or whatever it was at the time. And then he would identify, you know, he would basically agree with your take on it. You would say, well, you know, the, the White Sox are looking to uh, trade Chris Sale. And he'd say, well, you know, I can't really talk about another team's players, but that's the kind of guy we need to get. And so Dabrowski, there was not a whole lot of trying to mislead you or, or trying to figure out what he was going to do. He was always going to do the, the most direct thing that made sense. And at the time, uh, especially given the issues Sale was having with the White Sox, uh, he had been suspended that year. You know, obviously there was some discontent that um, you thought that they would try to trade for Chris Sale. And at that winter meetings, Dombrowski, as he was with David Price, as he was with Craig Kimbrell, he was aggressive and, and made that trade as quickly as he could once those meetings started. That, of course, led to Brian Cashman's infamous, they're the Golden State Warriors comment, which <laughs> for those of us at the time working for tabloids in New York had a lot of fun with that. Uh, Pete, I appreciate you taking some time to relive some winter meetings of the past, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, Mark. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Executive Access is brought to you by Roman, an official partner of Major League Baseball. Roman makes getting genuine medication and follow-up care from a U.S. licensed physician accessible, convenient, and discreet. With Roman, there are no waiting rooms, no awkward conversations, or uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. Just quality care. If you're experiencing ED, hair loss, and other symptoms, head over to GetRoman.com major to get started with a free online visit, and if approved, two-day shipping on your medication. That's GetRoman.com major for a free online visit and two-day shipping. All right, we welcome in now my good friend Matthew Leach, who was the longtime Cardinals beat writer for MLB.com. He's now the executive editor of the National League for MLB.com. And Matthew was at the winter meetings with me in December of 2011 when maybe the greatest Cardinal of them all, or certainly one of the top two or three, uh, left St. Louis, Albert Pujols, signing a huge 10-year, $254 million deal with the Los Angeles Angels. Matt, how you doing? Doing real well yourself. Doing very good. Thank you. Um, so this is probably one of the, I guess, next to, oh no, actually it was $2 million more than A-Rod. This is probably the biggest contract ever signed at, during the winter meetings. Um, but it wasn't a very straightforward transaction. There, I remember there were a lot of uh, twists and turns and a roller coaster uh, in terms of where Pujols was going to go. Obviously, at the time, he was uh, arguably the best player in the game and uh, certainly one of the, the great hitters of all time and an iconic Cardinal. So if you can take me back to that 2011 meetings in Dallas, um, when you got there, are you thinking that, that Pujols' return to the Cardinals is, is the way this is ultimately going to shake out? You know, it was it was really hard to know, and it's kind of hard to um, separate hindsight and what makes sense now from what we thought then because I, I I do think there was some sense but I'm hesitant to sort of overplay it but I do think there was some real sense that when they didn't get it done um, the previous spring and that was that was actually probably even a bigger frenzy for me on the beat than the winter meetings that that deadline he had at the beginning of spring training in 2011. Um, and there was a lot of notion. I think there's a lot of thought now, but I do believe it was also there at the time that when they didn't get it done then, uh, that was a problem. 
Uh, he wanted to be taken care of. He wanted that commitment. Um, and the club was hesitant. I mean, I, I, look, I don't know if anybody would admit this now. I know they wouldn't have admitted it at the time. But my theory has always been that they were very happy to finish second on pools. I think they had very real concerns about the length of the deal, about the commitment, about how he would age. Um, and so, you know, I thought there was a very real chance, but I was not at all shocked that he started the 2012 season with someone else or left the winter meetings uh, as a member of the Angels. And of course, Pools at that time, three-time MVP, his first 11 seasons in the majors, a 328 average, 445 home runs, and 1,329 RBIs. That's a career for, for most great players. Um, interestingly, his final season in St. Louis was the first one where he failed to knock in 100 runs or hit 300. Do you think there was some thought in the St. Louis organization that that even though he was still in his early 30s, that there was already a decline starting? For sure. For sure. I, I do think that was part of it. And and it, yeah, like you say, as you look at the numbers, um, that last year was not quite the same as he had been. And to some extent, you know, even the 2010 season, which was a great year, um, was not quite at that insane kind of peak that he had for the few years before. Um, so I do think there was some worry. Now, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, I, I feel like the way that Albert has changed as a hitter is not necessarily what I expected. Um, you know, I thought that the power might go and the, you know, ability to get base hits would stay and it's kind of been the opposite. But yeah, I look, I think that I, I think that they were, they had no desire to play in the end of the pool that the angels ended up going to. I think that, if you had told them at any point that that was what it was going to take to get that deal done, they would have said, good luck. Um, they would have loved to keep him. It's not that they didn't want to keep him. It's not like they wouldn't have been happy to have him. But at those terms, with the signs that were already starting to come, you know, with the amount of physical punishment that he took, um, you know, he played through a lot. You know, he missed some time with the DL, but not much. But he, you know, he played with a with a busted ankle for a long time. He played with plantar fasciitis for a long time. Uh, and I think they were really worried about how he was going to age. And like I said, I don't think they were terribly upset to finish second. I went back and looked at some of the coverage from that, that week uh, during those meetings. And it seemed like when everybody gathered in Dallas uh, Sunday night, Monday, it looked like it was between the Cardinals and the Marlins. The Marlins had an offer for over $200 million out there, and they appeared to be the real challenger uh, to the Cardinals for Pujols. And then at one point, I think it was even reported that uh, there might be a mystery team, which, of course, there's always a mystery team, uh, and that the Marlins didn't believe it. They, they thought this is all just posturing and, and you know, it's us and the Cardinals and that's it. Um, did you guys even have a sniff that the Angels were serious about going to the level that they ended up going to? Well, I don't think so in advance, but here's the thing. They were one of the teams, if you'd asked me in like May, if you'd asked me early in the season, okay, Albert's going, where do you think he's going? I would not, I, Miami would have been on that list, but I wouldn't have had them at the top. Anaheim would have been very, very high on that list. Um, you know, there was a, a, a lot of notion that, um, that the family wanted to go there, that his wife liked the idea of going there. Um, that it was kind of a nice mix of a place where, you know, you can um, cash in on endorsements and um, be well paid. And at the time, it thought win games um, at the same time, not being mobbed, not being in a in a, in a place like a New York or a Chicago where, um, you know, if you're that guy, if you're Albert Pujols, you can't really live your life. And so I think there was a notion all along that Anaheim was actually great fit um you know it made total sense it was it, it passed the sniff test um you know but the other part of that was that I didn't really believe much of anything anybody was saying uh for a variety of reasons um you know I mean I I more or less believed what the Cardinals people that I knew who I trusted were saying to me um but you know you know and especially when the stakes are that high you know that there's a ton of posturing you know that what they are saying is not so much for us, but for the people who are reading it. You know, I don't know that I had a real idea that it was the angels well in advance, but 
I was not at all shocked that there was somebody else in it, uh, and the Angels made a ton of sense. As late as Wednesday afternoon of those meetings, there was a report from a pretty well-known person, Bill Madden of the New York Daily News, my old colleague, uh, that the Cardinals were closing in on keeping Pujols. They were just a few million apart, and it looked like it was going to get done to bring him back. The next morning, uh, all of a sudden, the Marlins are out of it, the Angels are in it and pushing to get him. Uh, and, you know, it seems like uh, what's happening here, and about less than two hours later, pool holes at sign with the Angels. What was it like covering that story and just seeing this sort of back and forth where it, it seemingly everything changed every few hours? Yeah, it, it was constant chasing. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people involved in that deal um, who were very skilled at messaging. That's probably the kindest way I can put that. You know, the, the, the people we were dealing with there, and there are some people that I dealt with on that, that I trusted a lot, that I like a lot, that I still like and trust. But the people we were dealing with in various uh, quadrants of that whole deal, um, some of them were knew exactly what they were trying to accomplish with what they told to whom. Um, and so, you know, it was wild. It was a definite sense of constant chasing and, and not to make this, you know, this is obviously about Albert and not me, but there was an ad, added dynamic for us at MLB.com, which was, um, I think it was that day or the day after, or, or it was right around that time uh, that we finally made public something I'd known for a long time, which was that I was leaving beat. Uh, hand off the beat to, uh, to the person who took it over from me. Uh, and uh, Alden Gonzalez, who covered the Angels for us, was in his first year on the Angels beat, and I think even his first week on the Angels beat. So there was this added layer for us at MLB.com of me kind of being like, you know, and I'm one day from retirement. I mean, not retirement, obviously, years later. But, you know, there, there was this added dynamic of, of just like Alden just trying to get his footing on a new beat um, you know, me dealing with a lot of other stuff beyond trying to chase this biggest story that I, I had covered in years. And it was it was frantic in a way that um, the winter meetings aren't always, but it was definitely frantic. It was at all times monitoring all stories, anything anybody was writing, trying to pick up any little nugget that anybody might have. Um, and then and then the extra part, the part that, you know, makes you a professional is filtering those nuggets and, and filtering it through your, your, um, your bull detector um, and, and trying to get a read on who's trying to manipulate people, who's got actual information, who's being manipulated and, and just trying to get that read as to what's real, what's not. Um, it was in retrospect, a lot of fun. And at the time, not a whole heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> it's never a lot of fun at the time, right? It's, it's more stress than fun. That's for sure. Um, so Pujols' deal with the Angels, one of the biggest contracts ever signed at the winter meetings, certainly um, one of the, the most prominent players ever to change teams at a winter meetings, uh, but probably not the number one most prominent player, at least in terms of name recognition and, and everything else that comes with it. Uh, I had T.R. Sullivan on the podcast already to talk about those insane winter meetings in December of 2000 uh, when... Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, and Mike Hampton all signed contracts that uh, became, at the time, were the three biggest contracts in baseball history. You, as it turns out, were also at those winter meetings. What do you remember about that week? Because that must have just been, it wasn't a beat you were covering necessarily, but that must have just been pure insanity. It was It was nuts. And it was It was my first winter meetings. Um, you you kind of hear about, oh man, the winter meetings. And I'd wanted to go, and it was the first time I went. It was my first year with what was then. It wasn't even MLB.com. It was MajorLeagueBaseball.com. And we sent a crew of like four people down there, five people. And we're just kind of chasing all we can and writing it up the best we can, you know, covering the league rather than teams, which is one way it was different from now. But um, I vividly remember that morning, um, and it was the last morning. It was uh, Rule 5 morning, and it's coming out early in the morning. And um, the presser was – I think the next day and at that time an ice storm is hitting Dallas and I mean a serious ice storm um and so of our four or five person crew um you know I was what at that point 26 and single and living in a, a postage stamp apartment in Brooklyn I was like I'll stay back here the extra day and cover the presser uh, and so I changed my flight and uh tried to drive through the ice storm to my hotel and uh it was wild and, and the presser was wild. I mean, the whole thing was, was for me, 
such a like it's kind of like when you when you ha- have a rookie player and he goes to the World Series and there's some notion of so it's always like this right you know um, my first winter meetings and I'm like wow is this what the winter meetings are always like this is fantastic man this is incredibly fun um, it is not what they're always like uh, but it was and it was a charged winter meetings like few I can remember with all of the deals and all the movement and um a lot of what you think of now of like asking everybody have you heard anything have you heard anything you know a little of that is gone now right because you don't ask people have you heard anything you look at twitter um there was so much more have you heard have you heard have you heard that made it a different kind of fun but yeah that was easily the weirdest wildest most memorable winter meetings i've covered i mean just the idea of the three largest contracts in the sports history all being signed within three days in the same place is uh is pretty crazy that that last morning and, and back then the winter meetings were Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. They've since moved to become Monday through Thursday. But back then the rule five draft was first thing Monday morning. And when things break around the rule five draft, it's just mayhem because half the people there are trying to catch flights. The executives are trying to rush to get out of there. There's like a, you know, a, a bull rush to the airport. Um, I mean, I've had situations where I've actually broken stories from the airport where I've run into somebody at the airport um, but yeah, when, when I believe uh, the Pujols contract happened on the day of the Rule 5 draft as well, um, because Mo busted out of there early uh, and, and didn't even tell anybody he was leaving and he wasn't even at the Rule 5 draft. So uh, it, it is crazy when sort of you've been there for three days, stuff's going on, and then all of a sudden, just as you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you're, you know, checking in on your phone for your flight and all of a sudden something huge breaks and it's just like, oh, I guess we're not done here yet. Yeah, no, not at all. I actually, I'm trying to think, I grabbed somebody in the lobby because it's just like, again, it, it's a little hard to, to process or to remember how different it was not that long ago uh, in terms of how the information got out because you, you didn't have somebody's story up right away and their tweet up right away. And so you really are just like hearing rumors in a way that you don't now. I think I grabbed Lou Pinella. I saw somebody, and I, I want to say it was Pinella that I just saw walking in the, in the lobby. And I was like, I just stopped him and asked him, you know, is this true? Um, and he was kind of like, uh, it, he didn't, you know, I, I didn't even know the guy. I hadn't talked to him a couple of times, but he was sort of like, I don't know. It kept walking, but like, that's kind of what you're doing at that point. You just see anybody you're like, is this true? Can you help? Um, it was, it was wild in a way that I'm not sure it can be again because of the way information is disseminated. Well, and now thanks to you and all of our great editors and, copy desk folks and everything else. These stories are up right away at MLB.com and everywhere else. And nobody has to wait to find out what's going on. And I'm sure as we look into the future, this will be the case for many years to come. Although 10 years from now, who knows how information is going to be disseminated, but uh, yeah, good, uh, good old times at some old winter meetings. I appreciate you taking some time to join us to relive some of these, uh, some of these moments. Absolutely, man. This was fun. Joining me now on executive access, my good friend, I was on the beat with him for a long time. I'm no longer there, but he is still the Yankees beat writer for MLB.com. The one and only, the great Brian Hoke. How are you, Hokey? I'm doing well. Thank you, Mark. Good to be on with you. I appreciate you coming on. We're going to talk about a winter meetings that we both covered uh, as members of the Yankees beat um, that kept our heads spinning for <laughs> Jeff the slot machines in Vegas uh, that had our heads spinning. 2008, the Yankees... We're coming off of their first season without a playoff appearance in 15 years. They were preparing to open a new stadium. Uh, I'm pretty sure I read a book about this whole thing recently, written by, oh, you and me. Uh, <laughs> we haven't already. Um, the Yankees went out to Vegas and they needed pitching very badly. CC Sabathia was on the market, AJ Burnett was on the market, uh, and they were very interested in both. What was it like for you? I know my own experience. What was it like for you going out to Vegas, first time the meetings had been in Vegas, uh, and knowing that the Yankees were going to be such huge players for the top guys on the market? First of all, good drop-in on the book plug for Mission 27. I applaud that. Available wherever books are sold. (laughs) I feel like this is something we were able to dig into a lot more 10 years after the fact than we were at the time because um, what I remember most about that was – Obviously, it was in Vegas, so there was a lot of noise, the bright lights. Um, Not that you really got to go out of the hotel at the Bellagio very much, but Brian Cashman did. And that was strange for the winter meetings when, um, you know, we typically the beat reporters get to meet with the general manager once a day, every day. And 
there was just a day where they kept pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing back. And finally, they had to tell us, yeah, Cash isn't here. He, he left. And um, so, you know, now that we now we know what he was doing, he had the secretive mission to fly to San Francisco. Uh, he went and met with CeCe Sabathia at his house up in Northern California and basically dropped $161 million on the doorstep, the wheel full, you know, wheel full bar- wheelbarrow full of money and said, here, take it, take it or leave it. Um, come be a New York Yankee. And, um, you know, it was fun digging in with you, Mark, and kind of getting a few more of the behind the scenes details on that. Um, you know, the fact that Reggie Jackson almost short circuited it because uh, they had a meeting where Reggie wanted to talk about Reggie and uh, CeCe wanted to hear about how CeCe was going to be a Yankee. And so they had to actually go back and have a second meeting in secret at the Wynn Hotel just up the strip. So um, it, it was a cool location to have the winter meetings. Um but I think uh, it was easy to get distracted during that winter meetings. There was so much going on. And um, I, I think that uh, yeah, when I think back at those winter meetings in particular, that is one at the top of my list um, just because of the caliber of players that the Yankees were able to pursue and the amount of talk that was surrounding the team. And, um, yeah, obviously they, they went and spent a ton of money that offseason and opened that new ballpark in, in winning fashion and had the uh, the World Series trophy that November. So clearly it worked out for the Yankees. Now that story broke overnight uh, in Vegas that CC had agreed to sign with the Yankees after Cashman had gone to visit him in California. Uh, sort of an odd feeling, I remember, knowing that the GM wasn't there. And I don't think they told us initially that he went to California, but it got out that that's why he hadn't met with, with the beat writers. Um not not a common thing for for GM to just bolt the winter meetings in the middle of them, uh, but it showed how badly Brian Cashman wanted CC Sabathia on his team that he would leave Vegas and go fly to California for the night. It was a very strange moment um, because you know there's so much build up to the winter meetings and it's this place where all the executives are going to be under the same roof. And um, back in that time, I I think text messaging was not as prevalent as it is now. So you had a lot of face-to-face contact between the executives. And now I I think they could pretty much do their business from anywhere. But um, I mean, we're talking about a time when the iPhone hadn't even come out yet. So um, I I think that not having Cashman under that roof, you knew he was off doing something. Um, It just, you knew it was going to be big, whatever it was. But he had that very secretive mission where he booked a commercial flight. He flew up to San Fran, um, rented a car, I believe, or took a car service to CeCe's house and uh, sat there in the living room for about two or three hours with them and basically laid out the pitch of what it would be to be a Yankee. And they'd already talked by that point. This was kind of I remember Cashman saying that he felt like he was John Calipari going in to close out a recruit. Like uh, that was it, it, this was get that across the end zone, finish it. And then lock in CeCe as a Yankee. And um, CeCe came away convinced. His family was convinced. I know Cashman brought a swag bag of Yankees gear for his kids. And, you know, CeCe being such a family guy as we know him now, um, I think that made some kind of impact. But more than anything, it was selling him on the idea of being in New York, Um, you know, telling him that you don't necessarily have to live in midtown Manhattan. And, And obviously the family went and they bought their their house in uh, suburban New Jersey and built a mansion out there and live very comfortably. And that's where CeCe's going to spend his retirement now that we know. And um, but it was convincing him that New York could work for him because at the time of the winter meetings, I think a lot of people thought he was going to California, you know, because Vallejo and the Bay Area were so big for CeCe. And uh, it was the Yankees to convince him, hey, we got this new ballpark. We're going to have a winning team and you need to be a, a part of this. And uh, the sales pitch worked. You know, it's funny. The Yankees went on to sign A.J. Burnett. I think a day or two later, they introduced the two of them on a, at a press conference together, which I believe was the, the last official event at the old Yankee Stadium. Uh, and Mark Teixeira was a huge factor at those winter meetings as well. Um, you know, he was Scott Boris's biggest client at the time, you know, a free agent that year. And there was a lot of talk about where was Teixeira going to go. Uh, the Angels were a team that, that people were, were thinking about. Uh, the Red Sox obviously were were hugely in there. The Nationals, there were a lot of teams that were uh, in the mix, and he didn't sign for a couple more weeks. And of course, then he you know ends up signing with the Yankees for 180 million dollars. Um, but it's it's amazing to think about sort of how much the Yankees did that winter. Uh, you know, normally when a team goes out and you know signs the biggest pitcher to the biggest pitching contract of all time, you don't then also go out and give you know one of the five biggest position player contracts at the same time. 
but I guess that's uh, the power of the New York Yankees. And and they had the, remember this is George Steinbrenner is fading. Um, the 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 sons have taken over Hal and Hank Steinbrenner, and they want to inaugurate that new building with a championship. They want to give their father one more championship, and uh, before he uh, he moves on there. And uh, look, I, I think that the timing just came together. They had some big contracts coming off the books. Mike Mussina was gone after that year; he would retired. Jason Giambi was off the books. So uh, the Steinbrenners typically, if you go back over the history, even in the the Hal and Hank era. They've been very good about reinvesting once money comes off the books, and and they put that right back into the payroll. And so I think um, they were not afraid to write the big checks that offseason. And so uh, you had Sabathia, you had Burnett locked in. I think the sales pitch on Burnett didn't take very long at all. Once they signed Sabathia, AJ was like, I'm in. And uh, Teixeira... We had all thought Teixeira was going to Boston. That really seemed like it was 95% locked in, and I think even the Red Sox thought that. Something went wrong with the negotiations when the Red Sox flew down to Texas and met with Teixeira. And and that's the kind of crazy stuff that can happen during the offseason. You can think all the cards are pointing one way. It's lined up. That makes so much sense. Switch hitting guy. Uh, The Red Sox had drafted Teixeira back in the day, so they clearly liked him. Uh, You put him in. Fenway Park, you know, hitting from both sides of the plate with power. You know, Tex always used to say, look at the back of my baseball card. I'll always have 30 homers and 100 RBI. And I think with Fenway, he would have had a ton of doubles hitting off the monster uh, right-handed. He would have been a good fit there. Obviously, gold glove defense at first base. And the Yankees already seemed set at first base. They were going to have Nick Swisher as their first baseman, as you remember. And um, so on paper, it didn't seem to be uh, completely uh, a fit. Cashman kept going back to Hal Steinbrenner that winter, as he told us, and said, Mark Teixeira is out there. We can get him. We can get him. We can get him. And Hal Steinbrenner said very much what I just said. I don't see the fit. How, how does that work? And um, they really had to stick on it, say, it's going to be worth it. Let's write the check. Let's do the investment. And, and once things fell apart between Teixeira and Boston, uh, the Yankees swooped in and they were able to get it done. And that's a uh, part of what Cash always talks about is due diligence. Um, he had he had gone to meet with Boris and uh, Teixeira somewhere in the D.C. suburbs earlier that offseason, not really seeing the fit himself, but came away so impressed that it really stuck in his mind. And uh, once they had gotten Sabathia and Burnett done, he went back to Steinbrenner and said, hey, do you got any more money? Can you increase the payroll? Can we get this guy, too? And, um, you know, <laughs> look back and championship number number 27 probably doesn't happen without Mark Teixeira. And when those winter meetings ended, the Yankees had C.C. Sabathia in tow. They had pretty much locked in A.J. Burnett uh, and Brian Cashman, instead of flying from Vegas back to New York, made a little pit stop in Houston to go meet with Andy Pettit, who was a free agent. Uh, That one took a little longer because Pettit's uh, agents were looking for more money than Cashman was willing to give them. And I think, you know, as we found out and and reported in Mission 27, uh, you know, that money ultimately was used for Teixeira and, uh, and made it a little more difficult, even though Pettit did return, that was not, uh, you know, a foregone conclusion at the time. No, and Andy eventually got his money in the end, but they had to get more creative with it because, as you said, the money that they had gone back to Hal to increase the payroll went to Teixeira, and then they couldn't go back to him again and say, hey, can you increase it more? We need to get Andy Pettit. Everybody loved Andy Pettit. They wanted Andy Pettit back, but, um, you know, Cashman had already fired his bullets that offseason. He had asked management and ownership for as much payroll as they were going to give, and so it was basically, hey, here's what we have left. We can make it a very incentive-based contract. We'll pay you, we'll pay you based on innings pitched. And, um, you know, you'll get your money if you have a healthy full season. But this is all we can guarantee you right now. And I think off the top of my head, it was something like one year, $5 million with a ton of incentives and uh, probably got somewhere in the ballpark of 12. He got his money. He got paid. He got his his World Series ring, which I think is the most important thing to Andy when he talks about 2009. You know, when we interviewed him for the book, he was kind of murky on all the details there. He a lot of it was happening uh, behind his back. His agents were he. Some guys are very involved in their their off season, and some guys just say, "All right, you go take care of it to their agents and call me when it's done." And Andy was very much in the latter camp um, to the point where. He had to personally call Cashman at one point that that winter and say, hey, what's going on? And Cash said, well, have you talked to your agents? And he said, no. Can you just tell me what's going on? (laughs) Why am I not a Yankee already? And um, so they worked it out in the end. But it it is interesting to see um, how hands-on some guys are and how hands-off some guys are and uh, the different 
pass that can happen during the offseason where, um, you know, Andy had made it very clear he wanted to pitch for the Yankees or he was going to stay home. Um, so there was no real it wasn't like he was going to go sell himself to another team. Uh, he wanted Yankees or nothing. And um, they got him in the end. But it, it, he had to sweat it out a little bit. Well, as it turned out that winter, what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas. And that was a good thing for the Yankees as the Sabathia and Burnett, Teixeira, Pettit all helped them win that World Series in 2009 uh, and helped us uh, tell a pretty good story in our book, Mission 27. So, Brian, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll have you we'll have you back on some point soon. All right. When we write Mission 28, we can come on and uh, talk about how that team was built. There you go. Thanks a lot, Brian. You got it. See ya. All right. With us now, longtime Tigers beat writer for MLB.com, my good friend Jason Beck. Becker, how you doing? Great, Mark. Good talking with you again. I appreciate you coming on. So we've talked to some people about big free agent signings that have happened at the winter meetings and their impact and uh, you know what it was like covering the teams that, that made those signings or in some cases lost those players. Uh, you have a couple of winter meetings that you covered where Detroit Tigers made a couple of very big trades. Uh, and they had some different circumstances around them. Let's start out with December of 2007. Um, the Tigers sort of out of nowhere make a big trade with the Florida Marlins at the time, Florida, uh, where they traded Cameron Mabin, Andrew Miller, uh, Mike Ribello, uh, and a couple of other prospects, three other prospects, I think it was. I think it was six players in all to the Marlins for Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis. Obviously a very big trade for the Tigers. Um, take me back to that meetings and sort of this, how did this develop? I know it, it seemed to come out of nowhere where, where the, the Marlins basically uh, reached out to the Tigers and said, hey, here's, what, here's our price. And within two hours, a deal was done. Yeah. Well, the first thing to remember is that covering the winter meetings with Dave Dombrowski was never boring. You're always on guard for something. It might be a small deal. It might be something bigger. It was never dull. But even going into that, Dave was downplaying things. So there was a little bit of a, a calm going into those meetings. We thought they might make some minor upgrades, you know, maybe add a, a pitcher or two, or, you know, maybe look for a bat, but nothing huge. And then I think it was the second day of those meetings where the buzz started to build that, hey, Tigers might get into this Miguel Cabrera trade market because, you know, it wasn't a secret that Cabrera was out there available. I think the Tigers' interest was was more of a secret. As it turned out, as we learned after the fact, uh, Dombrowski had talked with then-owner Mike Illich uh, around Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, Illich had read rumors or reports that uh, Cabrera was available on the trade market and said, hey, are we interested in this guy? And Dave said, yes. I said, well, you know, if we can get creative and make things work, this might be a guy to make a push for. And that put a little bit more urgency on the, the Tigers' interest. Uh, the problem at that point was that the Angels were, were seen as the favorite, and they were already engaged with the Marlins in talks. So really, it, the Tigers didn't have much of a chance to get involved until the Marlins' talks with the Angels hit a snag. And I can't remember if it was for Howie Kendrick or maybe uh, somebody else. It was one of their young players. And Dave, being Dave, jumps in and goes all out to try to get it. And as that day unfolded, I, I think you got more and more of a sense, a building sense, really, that the Tigers were seriously in on this until around dinner time. I think it was, like early evening, when there were reports that they were close to an agreement. And Dombrowski was always pretty closed-mouthed about trade talks until they happened. Um, he, he was very good at giving you the process story after the fact, but would never really give you a glimpse into the process as it was going along. Um, once they were close, everybody in the Tigers' traveling party it, for those meetings were basically went into lockdown mode. Like, really, they were basically locked into their rooms and would not emerge. They got room service. Uh, they didn't want to be in the hallways having to talk about this deal. 
you know, Dave was paranoid about not so much jinxing this, but word leaking out and another team jumping in. Uh, I think the only exception was, was Jim Leland going out for dinner with his old buddy, Tony LaRussa. And even he was under strict orders not to talk. I, I think they had to do something creative for him to have his, he had to sneak off to like some secret outdoor area or something. So it was like late that night that that deal gets done. And for shock value, you really couldn't beat it. Um, nobody really saw the Tigers as being seriously interested. I, nobody even really saw the Tigers as being that team to go all in to make a deal like this. This was a team that even as they had built up to become contenders, they'd put in a pretty good priority on drafting well and signing well and trying to stockpile prospects to make their their jump into contention a long-lasting one. This was kind of, I, I guess, in hindsight, it was the dividing point where they went from a team looking to win for the long term into a team looking to win now. And that was a philosophy that really carried them for the bulk of the next decade, even though you know they really didn't make another huge move like this until the Prince Fielder signing like six years later. Um, it, it was really, it was surprising to see this team essentially sell out their farm system. And there were a few of us who thought, man, if, if these prospects turn out great and Cabrera turns out to not be a long-term fixture, you know, because mind you, he only had two years left before free agency. It was not a given that the Tigers were going to be able to sign him long-term. This could have easily backfired for the Tigers in a major way, but they stepped up and they stepped up again six months later, signing him to a, to a huge contract extension that, essentially set the path where everybody remembers Cabrera now as a Tiger. And I think when you look back on Mike Ilch's legacy as Tiger's owner, it's going to revolve around a few things. He brought the franchise back to respectability. The Tigers drafted Verlander under his watch. And the Tigers stepped up to acquire and keep Cabrera under his leadership. He was a superstar type of owner from his Red Wings days. And this, it, those two moves were the moves where he got his superstars for his baseball team. Yeah, you know, Mabin and Miller went on to obviously very nice careers, but, you know, Miguel Cabrera became a Hall of Fame player in Detroit and, uh, you know, certainly established himself as, you know, one of the best players in their club history. I'm still fascinated by how this thing went down where, you know, Tuesday morning, the second day of the meetings, the Marlins reach out to the Tigers and say, here's the price. And within two hours, the deal's done. Things don't happen that way. And the Tigers, at that point, they had uh, acquired Edgar Renteria in the offseason, who was a five-time All-Star at the time. Uh, and their lineup included Maglio Ordonez and Gary Sheffield and Pudge Rodriguez and Curtis Granderson, Placido Polanco. Like, this was a loaded lineup that got even more loaded once they added Miguel Cabrera to that group. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this... This was a team that in the course of four years went from a team of a lot of hitters you hadn't heard of beyond Dimitri Young to just this star-studded club led by a star manager in Jim Leland. This really vaulted them into you know, a big market club perception from the standpoint of the type of club you put together. This is the type of roster you looked at, and if you hadn't put labeled a team name under them, you would have thought it was the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Angels or some sort of big city on one of the coasts or maybe a Chicago club. This did not connect with Detroit, but it really it showed what Mike Illich wanted to do and was willing to do, the lengths he was willing to go, to try to win a World Series and bring like big market baseball to Detroit in, you know, in kind of the same reflection that he did with, with his hockey team years and years earlier. I think when the Tigers first were interested, they weren't expecting to have to give up both Miller and Maven. When the asking price came back for both, there was some trepidation there. I, I know some Tigers 
player development people who were very hesitant about doing that because they believed both those guys were going to end up being all-stars. But the fact that the Tigers could turn around so quickly and agree to those parameters and get something done, you know, they threw in some supporting guys and eventually Don Willis got thrown into the deal as well. I, I think that the fact that they came together so quickly reflected two things. One, yeah, I don't know if you could do something like this nowadays so quickly in the era of analytics. I think you'd have to analyze so many different things and so many different players to put it together. But secondly, it was a reflection of ownership. Um, you know, this wasn't an ownership committee. This wasn't something where you had to bounce a, a concept up to like a, a team president and then run it up the chain. Um you know, Dave Dombrowski was the president, general manager, and CEO of the Tigers. He reported to Mike Illich, not an ownership group, an owner, one owner, who was willing to approve those things. Um, it's it, it was it was one of many reflections where Mike Illich did business differently than a lot of major league owners at that time. Jason, I appreciate you taking some time to join us here on Executive Access, talk about some uh, good memories from the winter meetings, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Mark. That'll wrap up this very special winter meetings edition of Executive Access. I'd like to thank my guests from MLB.com, T.R. Sullivan, Matthew Leach, Brian Hoke, and Jason Beck, and from the Boston Globe, Peter Abraham. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon here on Executive Access. Executive Access.